Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. The text will be on the screen in a moment when we get there. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 to 7. And as we do, I think of the story of a man and a woman who had been married for more than 60 years. You may have heard this story. They shared everything together. They had kept no secrets from each other except that the little old woman had a shoebox in the top of her closet that she cautioned her husband never to open and never to ask her about. For all of these years, he had never thought about the box, but one day the little old woman got very sick and the doctor told her that she would not be able to recover. And trying to sort out all of the family affairs, the man took down the shoebox and he brought it to his wife's bedside and she agreed that it was time that he should know what was in the box. And when he opened it, he found two crocheted dolls and a stack of money totaling $95,000 in cash. He asked her about the contents. And she said, when we were to be married, my grandmother told me that the secret to marriage was never to argue. She told me that if I ever got angry with you, that I should just crochet a doll. And the man was so moved that there was only two precious little dolls in the box. And he began to fight back tears. All of those years, all of those engagements, all of those conversations, she had only been angry with him twice. Honey, he said, that explains the dolls. But what about all of the money? Where did that come from? Oh, that, she said, that's the money that I made from selling all of the dolls. <laughs> I take it from your giggles, you'd heard that one before. You know, there are a lot of anecdotes that we can use about marriage. A lot of stories, a lot of jokes about the struggles and the joys and the difficulties and the successes of marriage. And, and in the midst of all of that, we know that relational difficulty in marriage can be used to justify all sorts of behavior against one another. Marriage can be a great joy, marriage can be very, very difficult, and marriage is undoubtedly one of the ways that God uses to make us more holy. Today we pick up in our series in 1 Peter called Standing Fast in Difficult Times. And we see that in this larger section of 1 Peter that there's an exhortation that he's giving to Christians. The exhortation is in chapter 2, verse 13, and it is this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to all sorts of human institutions. Submit yourself, he says. And you can look at this principle of submission that he gives in this section in broad categories, medium categories, and narrow categories. He says, as we talked about last week, that there are difficulties that abound in the relationship between people and their government, and yet 
he tells the Christians to submit to them. And then there's difficulties that abound in the relationship between employers and employees, and he tells the Christians to submit to them. And in chapter 3, he continues with the difficulty in relationship in marriage, and he talks again about submission. And so think about it like a funnel. At the top, he addresses submission to all sorts of human institutions. He says, submit to the government. He says, submit to your employer. And now, at the bottom of the funnel, he talks about the most intimate, which is submission in our marriages. And with that, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. He says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter begins the command with wives to be subject to their husbands. And I know the tension in the room just went up. It is mirroring the command for us to be subject to every human institution, for us to be subject to the emperor, for us to be subject to our employers. But this is the most intimate. And if our temptation of the previous calls to submission were immediately to find the exceptions to the rule or the ways out of it, then undoubtedly our temptation in this call is to do the same, but even more so. And immediately we recognize that when we talk about submission, there are probably some in the room, some men who might sit up straight and puff out their chests, and some women who might roll their eyes and say, here we go again, based on your experience. But if that is your immediate reaction, then you have not truly experienced or understand the type of relationship that Peter is talking about here. And we recognize, don't we, that for some, when we talk about submission, there will be a great deal of assumptions, and there will be, for some, even a great deal of pain. 
And we'll talk more about what submission is and what submission isn't at the end. But for those of you who have experienced a great deal of pain or abuse in this most intimate of relationships, let's just say right from the beginning, right at the outset, that submission in marriage does not mean that a woman cannot think for herself It doesn't mean that a man should be domineering. It doesn't mean that abuse should be tolerated. And it doesn't mean that if your husband asks you to sin, then you should do it. We'll come back to some of those later. But for a simple definition of submission this morning, as a reminder, we see that submission, like we talked about last week, submission is willfully following the lead of another willfully following the lead of another. And here Peter gives three reasons why wives should willfully follow the lead of their husbands. The first one we see is what we might call a hopeful outcome. He gives this reason, and it's an evangelistic one. There is a hopeful outcome for those that live this way. Peter says that their husbands might be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. One might immediately think that if a woman is married to a man who doesn't follow the Lord Jesus, but that she is a Christian, not only will there be a different priority for life, a different vision for life, there will be a number of difficulties that follow in the marriage relationship, and as a result, this could be an excuse not to follow, number one, willfully, or even just to leave the marriage altogether. And he says that submission actually serves as a tool to show this husband the Lord as the wife entrusts herself to God and in this particular command in hopes that God will indeed save the husband. Now, this sounds easy to say, It is much more difficult to live. (laughs) But friends, I will tell you, there are hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of examples of this in human history. God knows what he's talking about here, and he follows through on his promises. In his confessions, the early church father Augustine wrote of his mother Monica and his father Patricius and the role that she had in leading her husband to faith. Now a confession, of course, is a writing to God. And so Augustine writes to God and this is what he says about his mother. He says, She served her husband as her master. And did all she could to win him for you. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Her beauty and humility and character shown through in pure conduct, winning her husband to the Lord. Do not diminish this reality. There will be men in heaven 
who will point to the long-suffering, humble, patient submission of their wives as the thing that the Lord used to show them Jesus and thus save them. There should be incredible encouragement for you women right now who find yourselves in this very place. That God would use your daily sacrifice, your daily labors to have eternal reward. (laughs) And that's the first reason Peter gives for submission. The second reason that he gives for submission is what we might call internal adornment. Women are to be subject to their husbands, and this constitutes a type of adorning. Look at verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit, gentle and quiet spirit, for this is very precious in God's sight. I love that word adornment. It's not a word that we use all that often today, but at its most basic, adornment means the way that things are ordered. And in this case, most certainly, the way that things are ordered has a connotation with it of decoration. Peter is saying, ladies, don't order your life in such a way that is simply decorated on the outside through braided hair or jewelry or really nice clothes. Let your beauty be arranged on the inside. Now let's be clear. He's not saying that you shouldn't care about how you look. He's not forbidding the use of makeup or styling your hair or or wearing certain types of clothing. He's not saying that, but what he is saying is that you could be a person who's incredibly beautiful on the outside, but overwhelmingly unattractive on the inside. You can be a great person to look at, but a terrible person to be with. Actress Halle Berry, who regularly throughout her career has made the lists of the most beautiful people, commented on beauty. And she said this. She said, beauty? Let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. No heartache, no trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless, and it's always transitory. I can't believe what people will do to themselves to make themselves look beautiful. The excess And then they end up distorted or worse. They still have that hole in their soul that led them to change themselves to begin with. As you think about adornment or ordering my life in a certain way, this poses all kinds of self-reflective questions, doesn't it? Am I ordering my life actively? Am I intentional about the way that I carry myself, or am I just winging it? If I'm ordering my life in a certain way, how am I ordering my life? What are you adorning yourself with? 
to the wives in this passage, God says that what is most precious to him is that you adorn yourself with a gentle and quiet spirit. This is what constitutes beauty that lasts. Imperishable beauty, he says. Beauty that never fades. Beauty that never dies. Beauty that is not subject to the physical aging process. This is true beauty. And so, ladies, when you think about getting ready in the morning to engage the world around you, do you get ready on the inside for what God considers to be the most precious? And men, are we valuing when we think of beauty? Are we valuing godly beauty in the way that we should? Are we teaching our sons to recognize such beauty as they look for a spouse? This internal adornment is beautiful and precious to God. The third reason why Peter points to this type of submission in the marriage is he looks at the holy women of God as an example. Verses 5 and 6 point to the holy women of the Old Testament with particular example of Sarah, who is Abraham's wife. Sarah, if you know anything about her, was far from a weak woman. She was strong and competent and capable, and yet Peter points to her as the example of willful submission. Abraham was far from the perfect husband, and nevertheless, he was the leader of his family, and Sarah, out of her desire to please God and out of entrusting herself to God, submitted herself to her husband, willfully following him, even though he put her in some terrible positions. And for this, God calls her holy. And he indicates that this is a pattern for godly women or holy women throughout history. And I want you to consider something with me a little bit more carefully. Look at verse 6. He says in verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. When you think about the Old Testament and you think about the relationship between Sarah and Abraham, I think there's only one place where Sarah refers to her husband as Lord, which is a common title for those in authority in the Old Testament. And that place is found in Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And I just want to read it for you so you can hear the context. This is when there are two angels visiting Sarah and Abraham. And they said to him, to Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I, after I am worn out and after my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to give you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So Sarah, waiting for a child, and the time has passed, the promised child, Abraham was supposed to be the father of Israel, his, his, his progeny were supposed to be as many as the stars in the sky and yet they were barren and in her unbelief and perhaps even in her fear she laughed at God's promise prompting the Lord to reply is there anything impossible with God our culture today tells women to hear these words about submission and laugh in disbelief and Maybe in the same type of fear. If I adopt this way of interaction in my marriage, we think, will I be safe in my marriage? Will I still have a voice and be a, viewed as a competent woman? Can I still have my own personhood? Will my husband mistreat me? Can I trust God in this? And the answer for Sarah and the answer for you is a resounding yes. Those who entrust themselves to God, even if it's frightening, it says in verse 6, will enjoy the benefits when he keeps his word to you. And so Peter says God can be trusted. You can live, you can walk through life with a humble disposition living in the dynamic of submission because God can be trusted. You can submit to the government authorities over you even if they're killing your brothers. You can submit to your employer even if there is some unjust treatment. You can submit in your marriage because even when those times are unfair or unjust or difficult, God himself will deliver you. And so trust him. Trust him. Peter concludes this section and he turns to the husbands. And he says in verse 7 that husbands are to honor their wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, honor your wives, he says. To live in an understanding way and to honor wives is the call of godly men. This certainly reminds us of Ephesians chapter 5, which is one of the other primary passages of the role of husbands. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The biblical picture of a godly husband is one who is self-sacrificial, one who's loving, one who is understanding, and one who is honoring. 
And for as often as we remind men in our time to exercise loving leadership in your homes, if you think for one second, guys, that this means that there's some sort of crude form of always getting your way, think again. You've missed the point. Because a godly man is one who imitates Jesus himself in love and care and honor. And if you noticed in the Ephesians passage, Ephesians 5.25, how does Jesus model love and care and honor? He dies for her. And that is what men you are called to imitate. In this passage, we see you're called to honor, to protect, to care for the spouse who's weaker than you, the weaker vessel, it says. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's just make something clear. There's no room in this kind of description for an overly aggressive, arrogant man. The picture is being painted of a manly man, yes, but a godly man. And so Peter gives two motivations for treating your wife this way. The first, it says that she is the weaker vessel. Now before some of us get upset about that description, it could mean either one of two things. Either the obvious, that she is the one who is physically weaker, which is not always the case, but often the case, that the man is stronger than the woman in marriage. Or it could mean the one with the weaker position of authority in the marriage. Either way, there's no room for a leadership that's domineering or physically abusive. Man, if you are acting in this way, then you are leading in a way that's contrary to God's design. The example of Christ is one who cares and loves and sacrifices. And ladies, if you are in a relationship that is abusive in its nature, then you need to know that the call to submission is not a call to submission in the middle of abuse. Never. That's not what he has in mind here. Peter says, men, that we're to do this, to love in this way, because ladies are heirs with you of the grace of life. Co-heirs, equals, together, and it eliminates the idea of one party being superior to the other. The second motivation is that your prayers may not be hindered. It's interesting that when he says your prayers, he talks in the plural, that your prayers together may not be hindered. When a husband mistreats his wife, it breaks down the opportunity to pray together. (laughs) And it also hinders the prayers of the husband. At the end of 1 Peter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we see this principle of submission. This is more than just a group of individual actions. And here's the thing, one of the many things that you need to take away from this, that the principle of submission is a posture. Yes, it requires decisions in the moment, but there's a posture that he's talking about here. And here, ladies have the benefit of winning their husbands, of being precious in the Lord's side of experiencing the benefits of entrusting themselves and men have the opportunity to lovingly and gently lead their families and they do this for the Lord's sake. There's a lot more that we could say but I know that this message is in so many ways countercultural today and 
It's filled with practical questions or concerns because all of your marriages are different (laughs) than each other. And so I want to close this morning by addressing just a few specific things practically for you. I want to address the definition one more time. I want to talk about two common objections to this teaching and then one common problem. But let's talk about the definition first. What submission is and what it isn't. Warren Wearsby is helpful here. Submission is willfully following the lead of another person. Submission is not subjugation. Subjugation turns a person, uh, makes a person become a thing, and it destroys individuality and removes all liberty. It makes, submission makes a person become more of what God wants him or her to be. It brings out individuality, and it does so in the healthy context of authority. Submission doesn't mean no input or no say in the matter at hand, but it does mean that the final decision rests with the husband because in any organization, in any tribe, in any family, there cannot be two heads. They'll go different directions. One has been given the lead and others follow. Here's a common objection. The common objection that is often talked about is, isn't male headship and female submission a practice that is bound to underdeveloped or ancient cultures. Isn't this just something for them back then? Haven't we grown out of this, in a sense? And the answer to that is no, for multiple reasons, but here's the main one. That the roles in your marriage are actually demonstrated in the person and the work of Jesus himself. So here in 1 Peter, we see that this whole section is grounded in the example of Jesus. He's presented as the one who sits under authority himself, who responds righteously in that context. And we know that Jesus, as a member of the Trinity for all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, willfully submits himself to the will of the Father. Jesus lives in submission, the Lord of the universe, to his Father. And it's interesting as we see the call for women in this passage to adorn themselves with this inner beauty that's displayed in a gentle and quiet spirit in verse 4. It calls to mind the words of Jesus, what he says about himself. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And so ladies, your role as one who submits to authority is a reflection of Jesus himself. Likewise, men, we talked briefly on your role from Ephesians 5.25 and here in 1 Peter chapter 3 as rooted in the example of Jesus himself. And so here it is in your marriage. Men, imitate Jesus. (laughs) Ladies, imitate Jesus. He provides the example for both roles in the marriage. And if that's the case, if that's the ground for these roles, then no, this is not just bound by any culture. This is part of God's design for the marriage relationship. Here's another common objection. 
by distinguishing, and this is probably the, the felt need, right? This is, this is the tension point for most of us in the room. By distinguishing roles in a marriage, you are saying that women are worth less than men. In God's eyes, or even in the eyes of the culture around. And friends, this is a common objection that feminism would bring to a text like this. Because in that theory of life, there is an incredible emphasis on position and power, on role and value. And we see that it's just simply not true, that your role in this world does not equate to your value as a person. Follow the logic with me. If I were to say to you that the governor of Ohio has a greater value in God's eyes than your next-door neighbor, would you agree with that? Of course you wouldn't. They're both of equal importance in God's eyes because they are both made in his image, and yet one has authority and one lives in submission to the other. Different roles, same value. Likewise, if I were to say to you that your boss has a greater value in God's eyes than your coworker, would you agree with that? Of course you wouldn't agree with that. Why? Because they are both made in the image of God. They both have inherent value because of that. And yet one has authority and the other one submits. The differentiation in roles between men and women in the context of marriage does not mean a differentiation in value. This is true for us in marriage. It, we see it in this very text that God values husbands and wives equally as co-heirs of his grace. They have the same destination. They both receive the blessings. And even though their role is different, they can live in this confident headship and submission dynamic and know that God loves them and values them equally, and so should we. Lastly, here's a common problem. The common problem for many of us in our marriages is the question, and there's a lot of different ways we could phrase this. What if my wife won't live in submission to me? Or ladies, what if my husband won't lead or he's not leading my family in the way that God designs? Friends, this marriage structure doesn't work if one party has to force or coerce the other party to fulfill their roles. Husbands, you can't force your wife to live in submission because the second you do, you're moving towards subjugation. The second you have to tell her to submit, you have to wonder as well, to look in the mirror and say, am I leading her in the right way? Am I leading her in a godly, loving way? For this to be healthy, she has to want to do it. And you can help her want to do it by continually displaying godly, loving, self-sacrificial leadership and honor and love. Likewise, wives, you can't force your husbands to lead. For this to happen in a healthy way, 
He has to want to do it. You can help him lead well by giving solid, loving input and encouragement, by willfully submitting to his leadership, even when he makes mistakes. But like we said last week, it isn't easy to submit to leadership when they're doing something that you disagree with. It's not really submission if you only follow when it's something you want. (laughs) I wonder, I wonder, ladies, how many of you have perfect husbands? Yes, Amy Gasky, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Of course you don't. Of course you don't. And yet God still works through imperfect husbands to lead their families. And so here's the point. Husbands, you have to want this. And wives, you have to want this. And if you do, there's tremendous benefits for you in entrusting yourself to God in this dynamic. If you don't, there are some intended and some unintended consequences that come. But for it to work, there needs to be some kind of mutual understanding about this order. And so here's the challenge. Here's the takeaway for you today. What changes do you have to make? Men, perhaps you have been abdicating your responsibility to lead. Or maybe you've been leading in a self-serving way instead of a self-sacrificial way. And today, you need to start having some serious conversations with your wife and some serious self-reflection about how you are leading her and your family. Ladies, what changes might you need to make? Is it a change in how you relate to your husband? Is it a change in how you adorn yourself? Don't let the practical nature of this text be lost. God preserves families. He uses them as active witnesses in the world. He sets them up in a structure that has wonderful meaning and benefit attached to it. Families are the core of any society. They can bring us the greatest joys. They can bring us the biggest heartaches. They can be abused and misused, or they can be beacons of light in the communities for generations to come. And so as all of us continue to submit ourselves to God, He helps us to lead our families as we order them. Order your home around loving relationships, loving headship and willful submission, because this is pleasing to God. Friends, that's a lot. We need help. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, this text has so many traps in it for us in our time. We have so many ideas of what this could and should not mean. We have so many experiences of distortion and abuse. And yet, God, we do say today that we trust you. We want to follow you faithfully. And we want our families to reflect your design. And so help us today. Help the men and the women in this room. Help those who hear this word to consider humbly and carefully the changes that we might make as a result. And God, as we entrust ourselves to you, may we experience the benefit of your blessing. Amen.